Hello and welcome back to Voicecraft, a medium for artful and experimental conversations that seek to share insight into the nature of psyche, culture and our relationship to an evolving world at the turn of an age. It's part of a broader culture-making vision to build wiser pathways to connection and collaboration and more effective protocols for sense-making and generative, meaningful and healthy interaction. There are breadcrumbs to follow if you look. My name is Tim Adelin and welcome to a fascinating conversation that circles on themes including the evolution of mythology and religion from the perspective of Jungian psychology and the collective unconscious. Joining me each for their second appearance on the podcast are Anderson Todd and Eric Godsey, each of whom share deep interests in the development of psyche and society, with varied backgrounds in Jung, cognitive science, alchemy, psychedelics and evolutionary thinking. For a dive into some of the concepts explored here, check out episodes 45 and 46 with Anderson Todd, which develops similar themes and offers a brilliant introduction into the notion of archetype itself. Check out the description for links to find more about Eric and Anderson. They're brilliant storytellers and clarifiers of deep, sometimes esoteric and much needed wisdom. Thank you for being here. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider sharing them or leaving a review and perhaps also to consider supporting it on patreon.com voicecraft. Your support makes a life-changing difference and a life-affirming impact. It will help sustain the podcast, build the network, and make possible more community events and educational resources. Read about the benefits at patreon.com voicecraft. Okay, here we go. This is the kind of conversation I've been working probably like five years to have, you know? which is an awful lot of effort to put in for some friends that you haven't met. But um, <laughs> well, you thank go. you. Much appreciated. <laughs> so look, I mean, I see these um, recordings. I'm starting to see them. It's like a, a bit of a weird mixture of uh, kind of like a friendship sort of joy, but then also a sort of serious ceremonial element because we could just be having this conversation not recorded. And so you know, it leads me to consider, well, what's the purpose of this? It's not like there's not very much content on the internet. So there's quite a bit of it. And so to what degree can we create something beautiful and helpful in a way that speaks not only to the imminence of what's between us here, but that actually serves as a, some sort of beneficial and helpful artifact. So in that sense, it's um, very much an ongoing experimental process with the context of a podcast itself, but also with obviously this being recorded with video as well and um, how this fits into a broader life project of fundamentally extending the kind of invitations for people to participate in, we can say, broadly processes of meaning making and sense making in ways that aren't as fucked as perhaps we've grown to engage in them these days. So... You know, between us, there's like a great interest in Jung. And um, I suppose with the slightly more esoteric and a cultural slant on things, this is something I've had something of an interest in, but take myself to be sort of, you know, an interested student in these kind of matters. Although with respect to Jung, I've, I've read somewhat more and I feel its influence on my way of making sense to be significant in many regards. And the other thing as well is that I see these as opportunities to, to really see if we can essentially further our understanding together in the way of synergy, you know, so we can think about that from an alchemical lens or just a straightforward synergetic lens. We can see what comes of our whole of perception if we manage to 
share and um, really hear in a way that furthers what it is we can't sense about the world and um, crystallize it into. So, you know, it's probably helpful in particular to the people listening and not viewing to place names to voices and perhaps just to get like very brief, like just a couple minute introductions, but let's not do this in, in a boring way. I can say a little bit, I can say that Eric, you're someone who I came across in the world of Jung online some amount of years ago now. I've lost count since I've been in curfew the last 10 weeks and I can't really relate to even what happened six months ago, some amount of years ago. And um, podcasts like Individuationing, Becoming Myth That Make Us, you're a writer and a podcaster and you've been working on a book recently and you're also a coach, someone who, um, who I see as on some kind of mission to understand the psyche um, in, and to present to people ways, guides of working with their own psyches and each other so that they can live healthier, more meaningful lives. This is a beautiful mission. And Anderson, you're someone who you just gave us a tour of your room before. There's um, imposing bookshelves on all sides. You are, you are a wizard in a library, someone who teaches Jung and cognitive science at the University of Toronto, a D&D master. Both of you have been on the <laughs> podcast before. It's bloody nice to have you here. So as some sort of introductory question, Eric, I'm curious, what drives you to even show up to a conversation like this? If there's a, some sort of magic or energy you feel, what sort of catalyzes your interest and fundamentally, like, why are you, why are you here at all? Um, I'm going to choose to see that as a lens of why am I here on the podcast as opposed to why I am embodied and doing the life thing. And the reason I'm really excited about this podcast is, uh, I, it's very rare for me to be in the presence of people who understand depth psychology and, you know, cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology in a way that can challenge the conclusions that I've come to so that I can further my understanding because much of my learning about Jungian ideas is alone. And, you know, alone is an interesting thing to really think about if you really understand what Jung is saying. But um, I'm really excited to offer what I believe and then to have it be challenged and reconstructed and um, to hear how you two see it as well. So I can allow that to, you know, fall into the soil and I can do some new things. And I'm excited to see what arises. Yeah, beautiful. Same to you, Anderson. What are you buddy here for, mate? I liked being here last time a lot. And also, uh, no, I did really thoroughly enjoy it last time. I guess similarly, I mean, you know, we were talking about this a bit at the outset and, <clears throat> you know, I have, I have a, a sort of a boundless interest in, in Jung in a lot of things, but, but Jung has occupied so much of my attention. Um, and yet, despite the fact that I've, I've read his work many times, there are still passages that are, um, if not quite opaque, in a state of sort of ongoing, unfolding revelation, you know, um, yeah. things that I get more out of. And, you know, similarly, you know, operating as kind of an autodidact and reading this stuff on your own, I feel is like kind of a time-honored tradition, almost in this sort of work. But at the same time, there's a, you know, like Jung says, right, there's a kind of chemical reaction that happens between people, um, consciously and unconsciously. And, you know, I think any opportunity to talk to smart interesting people about things that strike me as being really important 
and and essential to what it means to be human and and what's going on in general um, is always a treat. Uh, you know, I, I um, often have the opportunity to talk about this stuff, but of course, you know, I'm, I'm very often teaching it. So it's, it's me giving my interpretations and it's not that there isn't back and forth, but again, it's, uh, it's just a really cool opportunity to talk to, to people that are sort of deep, deep enthusiasts and, and, and are working with it, right. Instead of just sort of, overviewing it so right. so yeah so i'm looking forward to the chemical reactions i guess is what i mean mm. yeah something to pick up on immediately <clears throat> that's coming to me from both of what you're saying there is um this uh relationship between understanding and working with jungian ideas or depth psychology more broadly and then doing it in isolation versus doing it with others which speaks to so if, if we if we take an understanding that the psyche is some sort of uh relationship a dynamic relationship between parts that are in some kind of evolving growth like solar system like relationship i've heard you describe it kind of anderson at least with respect to the archetype of the self that we have this dynamic relationship of parts and how to relate to that in the actual social context because when we show up in group situations it's often the case that someone's got this kind of vibe someone's got that kind of vibe what is it like to recognize ourselves in others? And is there a way of actually optimally coming into relationship with each other where we can um, come to learn more about ourselves and each other? So yeah, it, it strikes me as something that's quite resonant to this sort of podcast and project as well, because what we do see more broadly in society, I think, is a breakdown of effective ways to come together as communities, the socio-technology of being together, along with the psycho-technology of how we relate to our inner sort of worlds. So I think that's for me why one of the reasons why this is such a, um, you know, why I'm so enthusiastic about seeing what can come of, um, of these kinds of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Eric, I know that, um, you are a coach working with Aubrey Marcus and various places. And I've, I know the, the, the project is sort of called Fit First Service. And please correct me if I'm wrong about any of that. And there's a sense in which there you're working with large groups of people in a sort of semi, you know, even though it's for a short period of time, a semi sort of tribal like setting where right. it's about getting people into a kind of right relationship of becoming with each other. I'm just wondering the degree to which your sort of understanding of um, yeah. Jung even has come through in those kind of environments. 100%. So um, the context of Fit for Service is it's a year-long program and we create a new curriculum each year. And the curriculum this year is the hero's journey. And so we're using um, the 12 stages of the hero's journey as is understood by Joseph Campbell, which most people don't know, but I'm sure both of you know, you know, the roots of that came from Jung. And I don't know if he specifically called it the hero's journey, but the way that I understand it is it seems to be the archetypical story of how the psyche goes through transformations. And we're trying to like, what's really interesting is, and again, one of my favorite reasons um, why I love to coach is when you're transmitting an idea to somebody their body will tell you instantly whether or not what you are saying is resonating with them. And so it's this constant tuning that you don't get if you're just thinking alone. And it's been really fun to try to 
tell people the hero's journey in a way where it resonates with them. But what I am finding as a coach that just, I love it is that people will tell me they don't know what to do. I will then tell them a brief summary of the 12 stages of the hero's journey. And just by describing the ordinary world and describing the call to adventure and describing the refusal of the call and describing crossing the threshold, every single time people are like, oh, I know what the thing is. And like, it's, it seems to be evidence of an archetype. And to your point, um, some of the research that I've been doing for the book with Aubrey about uh, community is that if people self-report as feeling lonely, they're more likely to die early than people who are obese, than people who live in an area with high air pollution, than people who smoke a pack a day, or um, what's the last one? Uh, but anyways, it has the highest correlation to all-cause mortality early death than any known factor that we are aware of right now. And it's something like one in four people report not even having a single close friend. And the thing that I have found about what creates the feeling of loneliness is if it feels like you can't be, if, it, if you feel that you aren't seen by somebody. And describing the hero's journey archetype or structure to people, really it's teaching them like these are the steps that you have to go through to be able to actually connect with people because it connects you to who you are authentically and then gives you the courage to step out of the quote unquote ordinary world, which is the archetypical matrix. And then um, what I am finding is that by giving people that framework and then giving them the opportunity to connect like the magic and the healing that is happening within the container is more powerful than anything that the coaches could consciously articulate or enact. Oh. Mm. Am I allowed to ask questions? I don't want to, uh, <clears throat> I don't want to like blow out the secret level on your workshop. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'm curious. I'm curious because um so, you know, the, the idea of the hero's journey, right, is probably maybe got even more popular penetration maybe than like Jung himself, right? So right. It's, it's one of those things that, I mean, it's been, it's been dominating Hollywood uh, since Star Wars and because of Star Wars. Um, but, you know, it has, it has lots of currency. Like it's a pretty standard thing that um, here in Canada, anyway, they teach it in English classes, right, in high school. It's one of these like lenses that you, you often use. Um, when you, when you work with people with it, and I'm thinking about this from sort of a therapeutic lens, and I think that right. there's, there's a pretty strong family resemblance between sort of therapeutic right. work and, and coaching work. Um, when people go to work with it, what do they do? Like, how do they, how do they code it? Like, do they work with it dramatically or are they just like getting a, a sort of a grasp of the stages and then mapping mm. life events in like, how, do you find that people differ in the ways that they, yeah. Yeah, so it for sure currently is B, where they're just getting the overview and then they're mapping life events onto it. What I would love is to get to the point where uh, I understand it well enough where I can put them through dramas because I think that that would mm -hmm. be even more powerful to help people. And I think that that's the psychological function of ritual is to put people mm -hmm. through dramas that actually help them either embody physically or body energetically new modes of being that will, that they can then bring to their ordinary life that can help them, you know, 
be heroic, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, currently, simply giving people that framework, it's like their psyche will begin to do the work on its own to help them see like, oh, this is the obstacle right now. Or, oh, this is the way through the obstacle right now. Or, oh, these are the people in my life or the voices in my life that are keeping me from doing the thing that I feel called to genuinely do. That's really cool. Uh, if you're looking at the dramatic side, I feel like I should be getting a kickback from the Dungeons and Dragons people at this point. But <laughs> if, you're, <laughs> if you're looking at the dramatic side, there are a few uh, more finely developed tools for putting people through a structured dramatic narrative art of that kind than role-playing games. D&D per se may not be it because it's a little bit of like a kill and loot simulator at the end of the day. Um, but, but there are sort of beautiful uh, uh, role-playing games out there, you know, in, for every genre and artistic dimension you can think of. And some of them do um, just sort of astounding things when you put uh, this kind of archetypal framework on, you know. Um, I've used the hero's journey in games a lot and I do a certain amount of therapeutic gaming in addition right. to, right. And before COVID shelved the whole thing, we were just firing up uh, a role-playing game study about, uh, tabletop RPGs and, um, uh, autism spectrum population. Mm. And one of the things we've really looked at when we've, you know, between that work and working with students is precisely that, that like giving the dramatic narrative space to embody heroism and and sort of doing a, a proxy thing where you can, if you're subtle about it, sim symbolize issues in certain ways, right? Um, so if you have a population that you know has somewhat shared issues, there are things that you can code in a sense right. into the drama that reflect or emulate. So I'm, I'm really, really interested in that. I um, love that. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, the thing is it's shockingly effective and I don't right. know why I'm surprised because it's an extremely participatory art form, and I, I think it's running on the source code of human, right. the consciousness organization principle, but, um, but nevertheless, it's surprising, right? Um, when it does take, there's, there's something really um, striking about it. Um, okay, I do have a question, and, and uh, I'm interested to get your, your take, because this is something I've considered at length, and Jung has some things to say about, but I still consider it a bit of a mystery, and it's in this, this vein. What do you think it is about explicating for somebody in, in these kinds of terms that you're talking about, right? right? Something that's structurally archetypal for them that catalyzes that action. Because we, in a sense, I mean, you know, if we believe that these things are archetypal and that they're sort of part of the foundation of the way our, our minds, our psyches are organized, right? right? And we, in a sense, just do it because we can do right. it not consciously. What do you think it is about about laying it out in conscious terms that, that can gel or catalyze action. Right. I mean, obviously there's lots of ideas yeah. in there potentially, but I'm curious your thoughts. So my intuition is um, <clears throat> whenever I see research or I study um, animals in captivity or animals that mm. have been domesticated, um, they show a level. So like animals that are domesticated show symptoms of neurosis and mental illness that no wild animal show. And also, um, no wild animals show evidence of PTSD, but mm. domestic animals do show um, symptoms of PTSD. And my intuition is that uh, culture has gotten to a point 
where we live inside of boxes, inside of boxes, inside of boxes, looking at boxes. So a city is a box that keeps out nature. And then we live inside of a house that is a box that keeps out nature. And then we live inside of a room that is a box that keeps out nature. And then we look through a screen, which is a box that keeps out nature. And it feels like uh, there's so many layers of cement of cultural conditioning. Cause one of the things mm -hmm. is like the greatest storytellers in the culture, I think that's the most sacred like act that a person can have in a tribe. We live in a culture where the greatest storytellers are corporations and they're not trying to tell stories that like the elders were trying to tell around fires. And so I think we live in a population where the majority of people are essentially domest domesticated animals who don't even know what their instincts feel like and that articulating what seems to be a story that represents like the instinct to growth it almost needs to be transmuted in language to these creatures that are so disconnected from their instincts that the only thing that they've learned how to really interact with is their mind and language. That's interesting. Um, like yeah. Uh, this really plugs into the, I have something of a running critique of, of Disney and don't get me wrong. I like Disney movies as much as anybody. They're very entertaining. Um, but I have a running critique of Disney about how, essentially speaking, they, you know, um, they've not just bowdlerized myths uh, and fairy tales, but they've sort of weaponized them uh, mm -hmm. in, in an important sense. And they've gotten very good at doing this. It's one of the reasons that freaks me out a little bit because, you know, like I, I alluded to with, with Star Wars, I have, a, I have a very strong opinion about Star Wars. I'm, I'm a 70s child, so it's, it's my religion in, in some ways, my childhood religion. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course, Star Wars did something really specific, right? Which is it explicitly took the hero's journey and it, and it applied it in a way that nobody expected this movie about weird robots and hairy monsters and laser swords to become an international cultural phenomenon, right? Um, the producers didn't expect it. George Lucas didn't expect it. The actors didn't expect it, right? Um, and yet it became this huge thing basically because it, it applied this structure. I do sometimes worry, actually, um, and this is my concern, that, you know, in the way that other kinds of mythological representations and cultures can be um, worn down, right, overdrawn, um, that it's possible to come, I mean, you know, you're, you're sort of pointing out, right, the, the storyteller around the fire um, or at a certain time of year, you know, it's like now is, you know, when the pole star is at its highest. And so this is when we tell this story. Um, and instead what we have is like, here is a story that has this recognizable emotional transference thing when we run it for you. And now we're going to run it over and 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 over. Um, so I worry about that stuff sometimes. I mean, myths can always slough that shit off. Right, right. And, and emerge fresh. But at the same time, um, you know, I sometimes do worry about the idea that, yeah, the, the big storytelling powers um, have really sort of turned or attempted to turn myth into a crank machine for, right. you know, yeah. So I know and what you so mean. What I find is important and powerful is when you only use language to transfer the story, 
um, mm -hmm. in the absence of making the person um, absorb the image that you're providing, you allow their psyche to provide the image in their imagination. And that is in a sense like a waking dream. And so it becomes personal. Uh, mm -hmm. It can slouch off the concrete of the corporatization of this myth. And so I find that um, if you give it to people in person through language alone, that their psyche is able to put the flesh on the bones, as opposed to if you're watching a movie, the flesh is being provided for you by the images and the musical score behind it. And um, I think that that is one of the ways that the myth can stay alive and not be prostituted by you know these entities that are, are their primary goal is to make money. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, something that comes to me also is that there are many myths, you know, and um, it's not clear to me that I've even necessarily um, breathed, breathed them all in and out to the same degree, right? And this speaks to the point about how movies might be co-opting me or us in various ways by preventing, by presenting some rather than others and almost treating that sort of relationship like just another box. And there's part of me that's always um, wanting to push beyond the edge of that. And so it'd be a tragic thing, for example, to have the, the hero's myth be something that just enables people to sort of get their stimulation and kicks to essentially stay where they are and fundamentally not end up participating in the world, which makes me think of, um, the uh, a more fuller context um, of actual participation and embodiment, which is um, more akin to what you're speaking about in the context of the um, various kinds of coaching processes you're talking about, Eric, that's so important. But I'm also interested in this relationship between different kinds of myths. Like as, a, as a male, I think I've been more interested in more typically male myths. Um, but I'm also interested in... Um, female myths of our time and then i'm interested in well what if we have to create new myths right which is a which is a tough thing to say when it comes to jung in some respects because there's a skepticism regarding the degree to which archetypes can be created at all rather than just merely reparticularized but i'd like to presence this in relationship to this other sort of complex concept which is might be some sort of idea of emergence in nature and emergence in culture. We might say the technological emergence we're experiencing at the moment, this creation of new channels of communication, the ubiquity of information, but how difficult it is to process it. And so the various ways we're being hacked by algorithms to present to us what the algorithms will sort of uh, find, you know, think we're going to find most relevant so that we can continue to just do the consuming thing. So it's like, to what degree um, could even the myths that have been so powerful for us no longer serve us? I mean, I know I've put like four or five things into the pot there. <laughs> so please like just pick one or pick what pops out to you at all from all of that. But I have sort of three loosely connected thoughts. Um, so, you know, considering all that stuff, I sort of think in, in I guess, a few different axes, right? So I think along the, the, the line of time um, and sort of into the, the future, into the past, but like the line of time and beyond sort of our immediate time. And I think about sort of scale um, 
you know, scaling it up to whatever uh, extent. And then, and then, uh, and then I think of it in terms of, I guess, the the terminal versus the cyclical. So, so in terms of like time, well, no, actually, let's let's do scale first. In terms of scale, you know, I think about some of these technologies of connection, you know, Facebook, social media, whatever, and. The evidence, of course, seems to be mounting up that they're, of course, cross-connecting us, not just consciously, but uh, unconsciously. Um, and it's the unconscious effects um, that, that you begin to really see at scale. So the way I've been thinking about it is like, when we built the internal combustion engine, right, what did we think we were getting? We <laughs> thought we were getting personal transport, personal transport and convenience. That's what we thought. And we built these machines and we put a billion of them on the planet and we all thought we were in the age of happy motoring, getting around. But at scale, that's not what we built. What we built was a terraforming engine to turn our planet into Venus. That's what we actually built. A machine that pulls dinosaur wine out of the ground and pumps it into the atmosphere and raises the temperature for everybody, right? That's what right. we actually built. And it's only at the limited scale that it looks like the age of happy motoring, right? So... When I think about technologies and I, and I think about this stuff, I, I have speculated a bunch lately that in a way, a lot of these cross-connecting technologies initially, you know, you think about the, the 1990s wired vision, utopian vision, you know, of what the internet was going to be and it was going to connect us together. And it did that until we got the pattern recognition on the algorithms up to the point when they began to be able to make predictive, right, predictive intrusions into right and when we monetized attention in this very fine-grained way right and then what has the impact of that well what we think the impact is is that people get this feed of shit that they're interested in right and just like a like a goose with one of those feeding <laughs> tubes um for foie gras but what they actually got if you pull back from scale is a machine that seems to be raising the global emotional temperature mostly by siloing people and then feeding them um, whatever outrage they happen to already agree with. And it's a very tight yeah. way, right? So, so there's kind of a scope and scale thing. And I often wonder about what that means in a sense, archetypally. Is there some, is there like a hothouse archetype here that is maybe a new thing in some sense, right? right. And, and maybe sort of emerging in a new way that didn't quite exist before because the, the, the technology wasn't there. So right. I think about that. When I think about the timeline aspect, um, you know, from that perspective, it's, it's in some ways, I think, clear that, that Jung, at least in late Jung, did intend for a certain amount of historical evolution. So if you look in Ion, his book Ion, um, or, or I think a bit more sharply in uh, Answer to Job, right? Answer to Job is a fascinating little book, right? Because it, it looks at the story of Job. So, you know, the book of Job in the Bible is... Uh, you know, this wager that takes place between God and, and the devil when the devil was still an employee and not an enemy. <laughs> and they're both sort of sitting on the cliffside and the devil's like, hey, your servant Job uh, seems quite pious. And God's like, yup. And then uh, he's like, I bet you if I absolutely destroy this guy, I can get him to renounce you. And God basically, you know, says you're on uh, 10 bucks for the winner kind of thing. And so they, they then proceed, right? He allows the adversary to do this and he just crushes this guy's life, right? He kills his children and robs them of his father, all this stuff. And then you get to this final scene. And in the final scene, you know, God appears and Job has, of course, the temerity to just for one instant sort of say like, 
you know, why did this have to happen anyway? Basically, right? God freaks out. He freaks out. This is Old Testament God, you know, full-throated. And, you know, he says, uh, you know, where, where, where wert thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Canst thou drop Leviathan with a hook? Like he really, he's like, I'm God. Who are you? I'm God. And Jung's interpretation of that, I think, is so um, interesting. It's heretical, but it's interesting, which is that that event, you know, looking at the sort of the, the, the two halves of the Bible, right, Old Testament to New Testament, that that's the event that produces, in a sense, in God, guilt. God feels ashamed for what he's done. Now, if we think about that in, in sort of Jungian terms, as he was, right, then what we're talking about is the self, the archetype of the self and its relationship to the ego in some wow. deeply collective sense, suddenly undergoing a kind of moment of consciousness, which is supposed to be at the whole heart of what the encounter between the ego and all the other archetypes is, right? We lend them consciousness. That's why they all want our attention. That's why we matter. And so the self sort of has this moment of consciousness where it stops being a, a, a capricious, tyrannical asshole and feels bad enough that in Jung's interpretation, that's what then precipitates the incarnation. God Whoa. has to then incarnate, <laughs> right? So that he can take on sufferings so that he knows what's going on on the ground. Like, and that's, you know, and obviously, right, there's a million theological and interpretive and hermeneutic, you know, objections that you can bring to this. But at the heart of it, that's a really interesting example for sort of the hinge that's in the Bible, right? This transition, this transition between this, uh, this angry, plague-tossing, smashing, quite capricious, sometimes good-natured being, and this like God of love who we see in the, right, it's very Greek, we see in the, in the New Testament in Christ's incarnation. So just right there, Jung is really pointing at something in an eye on more broadly, right? And he's pointing at these sort of transitions that are occurring where the archetypes can seemingly, you know, in, in a collective sense, change change their stance, change their mode on more than sort of merely cosmetic or, or minor, right? And, you know, whatever. We could argue all day about how much the interaction between archetype and culture, but yeah. And then the third thing that strikes me, and this is something I think about a lot, is, which I'll kind of pitch out there, I guess. Um, so archetypes are cyclical, right? That's in their nature, um, that, they, that they follow a cycle. It, it's that thing that makes them somewhat predictable. They're sort of circular things. Um, in the way that time used to be circular for humans, right, rather than linear. So it was, you know, the, the cycle and the procession of the equinoxes and all that jazz, right? There was a, a circularity, and archetypes are very circular. Um, and so I wonder sometimes what it means for the circularity of archetypes and how they help us predict things in our lives that we might be coming up on sort of a massive historical discontinuity that things might be actually really changing like in a radical way fairly right. soon. And, you know, we can take our pick. I keep one toe in the like Kurtz violin um, transcend in the machine consciousness pool, but I'm thinking mostly here about like climate change, right? right? And the potential that in the same way as animals, which are essentially cyclical, can't change as the environmental conditions change. I sort of wonder what it means, like whether our myths are going to have to run a gauntlet because they won't be, predictive. And of course, we have myths for that, right? Phoenix and rebirth and I don't know. So that's... <laughs>
Wow. Okay. So, so many things came up that I want to touch on. Um, I have mm. a couple of things that came up when Tim first asked the question, but I really want to explore one thing for a moment. It is a revolutionary idea to me to, to really connect to the possibility that could the ego react to the self in such a way that it fundamentally changes the way the self is, you know, guiding or orchestrating the ego's life and that maybe it requires a moment of uh, the ego contesting the self mm -hmm. that would precipitate that. But it seems to be, if you use the story of Job as the map here, that you know, because most people at the beginning of their quote unquote transformational journey, they are fighting against the self, but it seems like it hasn't earned through suffering the ability or through piousness and then suffering the, the space to question the self in such a way that would create guilt in the self. So that's a really interesting idea that I'm going to think about a lot is that <clears throat> can the ego get to the point where it's earned the right to potentially maybe critique the self in a way that can transform the self. That's, that's radical and very interesting to me. The couple of things that came up when Tim first asked the question is I imagine the psyche on one level as like the ocean and to try to keep it down through anything is like trying to pour cement on top of the ocean, like good fucking luck. And um, what I find in my community, so like, a lot of people that I know, they do things like ayahuasca and mushrooms with intention and inside of containers that have been honed for thousands of years. Mm. And in the same way that dreams at times, like my intuition is that it, it were dreams and visionary states that produce all myths that have ever arisen into the space of ever being able to be articulated that that function is still alive in every single human on this planet. And we are all watching and we are all paying attention and all, all of our cells inside of us, capital S cells, we're watching what's going on and people are having dreams and people are having visionary experiences. And I believe that whatever archetype needs to arise to increase the adaptability of the collective psyche, it will come. And now, but do we have the ability to listen to whoever the people are and do we create containers for people to even be able to hold that space and be able to articulate those stories in a way where we don't give them pharmaceuticals that numb them and put them inside of boxes, you know, like mm -hmm. do we even have the cultural container to allow for people to be prophets? You know, like mm -hmm. that's a really interesting thing to feel into. Um, and I also do agree that it feels like once the rise of the internet happened, that it connected psyche in a way that was completely unknown and has never been known before. And my intuition is like in the same way that the personal ego goes through its transformation, where like in early teenage years, that's when the shadow becomes kind of the, like that's when it comes into full force and the ego doesn't quite know how to contend with it. And there's the most volatile behaviors that, um, hopefully a integration can come in early twenties or thirties. And for people that have midlife crises is because they've ignored it for 20 years and then it comes up again. And my feeling is that on a collective level, we're like a 16 year old, like with the rising of the internet within the last 30 years, like we are just beginning to truly contend with our shadow. 
And right now it feels, you know, like how a parent probably feels about their 18 year old who is just completely fucking rebelling. And there's just anger and destruction everywhere. My intuition um, and I skew to optimism is that there is going, and we are in the midst of like that revolution in the collective psyche. And that my hope is that new myths will arise and they will have platforms and they will able to be heard. And they will like, there's so many independent people making independent art that, you know, I'm hoping that there will be a star Wars of our time that instead of being created by a corporation is created by an independent that is so unique that completely resonates with whatever story needs to be heard right now that will allow people to contend with the issues that are arising. Beautiful. Let me make one meta sort of meta reflection on the dynamics of the conversation so far, because, okay, so we began with this conversation. I kind of introduced you guys to open the space. We shared some intentions. We began talking a bit of a flow starts to develop. And then I, in the last time I spoke, I put like, Oh, this is a, this is a fire alarm here. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to mute myself for you guys. <laughs> So, okay, I've labeled the part inside of me that has completely downloaded the weirdness of young and synchronicity and all that thing. And I call her Evie. And mm. like that part in me, whatever you were about to say was interrupting whatever was wanting to come out that it created a synchronicity around you that kept you from bringing forth that idea. That's, that's the interesting instinctual laugh that comes up out of me. <laughs> well it's finished oh. now and I could, I, could, I, could, I can bring it back i can bring it back and the point was really to to actually to introduce a bit of chaos right so so i put about four ideas on the table and i can imagine the listening experience for some people was kind of like whoa but then anderson was able to take some of that raw material craft it into some points which he might not have mentioned otherwise in that particular instance and then now we reflect on that and we continue speaking. But I'm raising this because there's a kind of, um, this is part of the collective art process and there's different roles to play in the dynamics of generativity and conversation itself. So if I was with other people speaking, I wouldn't have said those kinds of things, right? There's times when I might have to be the one providing a more steady flow of coherence. But in this context, because of who I'm with, I can play a certain role that then enables the whole of the conversation to become more. So for people listening, and just because this is sort of in resonance with the broader scope of this project, and I think also what we're speaking about in a very interesting way, an understanding of the dynamics of communication and the different roles we play in it, I think is deeply part of what we're speaking about here. If we can kind of, it's, it's like different instrumentation. And if we can come to the right sort of bass track, if we introduce the right instruments, and then maybe we can add one or two people, and then there's already the kind of um, the fellowship of players there, we can add one in, and all of a sudden then, does that provide a context for something radically new to actually presence itself in a safe way and then be caught, you know, just like a moment of insight. It might just be to the void, it might be back into the chaos, but if there's some people there who can pick it up, and bring it on, well, then maybe that's something, um, something deeply worthwhile. Um, I find that in these kinds of spaces, and I mean, you know, it's, 
it's obviously it's very sort of conversational despite the the you know relative focus but the ones that I find most pleasing, and maybe this speaks actually to, to what we're already talking about with these cycles. I love the ones where there are like uh, two or three dozen untracked insightful <laughs> jewels that get fired out the side. And you're like, ah, we'll come back to that. Uh, but then inexplicably, you end up back where you started without. I once had a conversation that started on the topic of lobsters, went for like three hours, and then ended on lobsters. And it was so beautiful and it was not like a, it was not a move. We just got there, you know, in this spontaneous um, way. Um, and, you know, and spontaneity is a big part of it. Um, I think it's important with something like this that, you know, that, well, I mean, you know, none of us can feel too guarded, right? There has to be that open space. Um, probably helps. I imagine we're all quite high openness. Um, right. So having that kind of thing, uh, land makes a big difference. Um, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about, about this process and then also thinking about this, this business of sort of the ego pushing, pushing back and, um, pushing back against the self. And, you know, I think wrestling with God or wrestling with angels is like, that's like an honest part of the work, right? Yeah. I don't think you can get too deep into thinking about stuff without having some serious beef with the, the creator and the state of affairs. Like, or, or I think you're maybe not looking at it deeply enough. And, the, and part of that is sort of shadow work. And part of it is realizing like the shadow goes all the way up and all the way down, right? That, that God is not simply nice. Um, and, that, and that the universe is not simply nice. It's often nice. It's possible to make it nicer. And you can always appreciate things and so on and so forth. And there are meaningful threads to be found, but also it's got teeth. Um, and, and as I once told the students and immediately regretted it, uh, I was teaching in high school, uh, that it has bones of crystallized tragedy. Um, yes. <laughs> which yes. I think was a bit much for her. Um, you know, so, so I think about the, the wrestling piece. Um, so this is what I'm thinking. Sorry, I'm kind of a little all over the place. There's a certain kind of thing that happens often in these kinds of conversations, which is like there's kind of a weaving and a certain amount of something. There's like back and spark and weaving, right? And it's very different than, say, debate, right. where you have the, the confrontational aspect, right? And uh, when you do have debates, I was watching the fragments of the U.S. debate, and it's not clear that debates mean what they used to. But... Right. Um, you know, I sometimes wonder about what the, what the sort of exchange is between those things. Like, is it, is a weave and a flow, can that get you everywhere? Do you have to, do you think have wrestling? Does there need to be conflict? Like, how do those things fit together? Yeah, and, I think yes. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, at the same time, I'm, I'm very interested in like the anti-debate as a concept, right? right. Which is like, uh, rather than just trying to like get your opponent with points, you form, you know, steel man versions of what they're saying. And the right. idea is really to, to create a collaborative effort. And I think sometimes, obviously, our adversarial process loses sight of that. Um, yeah, my, yeah. My intuition here is that um, <clears throat> you don't need classic debates anymore. But what I do think is required is, do you have the courage 
and the clarity to feel inside of you that when something is said, do you genuinely have where you currently are a different viewpoint? Can you mm -hmm. articulate it clearly with the intention of co-creating greater clarity with the people that you are with? And so like the way that I imagine it is like if we're co-weaving a fabric, but, mm -hmm. but my genius in me truly sees like that's the wrong pattern there. Can we deconstruct it? Can we talk about mm -hmm. why it's felt that it doesn't fit what was unfolding? And then can we co-weave together? But it's why I love podcasts and it's like podcasts have transformed the way that I speak to people and the way that I speak to everybody now is I'm genuinely trying to feel what is the, what is the cloth, the weaving that they are presenting me? Is there anything that I genuinely feel I can learn from their cloth as it's being presented to add to my cloth? And then is there anything that I genuinely feel I can add to their cloth to help move towards the felt sense of where I feel they're trying to make their cloth go? Because there is this intuition in me, you know, it's the idea of the daemon or the daimon, depending on who you hear pronounce it, but that in the same way that every acorn knows what it's trying to become. Every human on an unconscious level knows what it's trying to become. And when you're in a conversation, can you feel into what their becoming is? Can you feel what your becoming is? And then can you trust the fact that something has brought the two of you together? And then can you be humble enough to recognize there is something in this being that if I was open and I listened would fundamentally help me towards whatever my becoming is. And then me offering my truth as I see it now, as I feel it now, can help them in their becoming. But the whole idea of a debate implies you already know, and so you learn nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, Eric, you put that so beautifully. I, I don't think I have mm -hmm. much to add to it other than um, when I mentioned you, know, Addison, I think, yes, I wasn't saying, yeah, we should just have debate. It's, it's, more, it's more akin to the manner of... Um, it's 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 our intention towards the whole of the process both before and after so how do we catch each other how do we hold each other how do we share with each other after the confrontation you know as well as before i see these things as kind of like a dynamic relationship between confrontation and surrender and there are appropriate and inappropriate kinds of both right so it's inappropriate for me to confront if for example i, I like the way you put it eric if i if I don't have the intention to bring sort of greater clarity or otherwise sort of um, um, uh, develop or raise the space that we're all inhabiting in some sense to make a deep contribution to what is integrous about the fabric that is, is where we're co-weaving together, which right. at the same time is in some sense our very coherence and being in the world together. Um, and then the surrender piece is like, well, sometimes, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's to to simply appreciate and be moved by the flow of another and then sometimes uh you you need to stop being moved by that flow because they're spiraling you off into some sort of titrated oblivion with just boxes and boxes and it's repressing that creative spirit and so actually it's not it's not the right way yeah i think a lot of it i mean it's interesting that Obviously, there's an intuitive component, right, to, to sort of feeling your way through, right, and getting a sense of where you're lining up with people and what they have to offer and what, you know, how, how you sort of plug together in some sense. Um, but there's also, there's an element of, like, 
flexibility that's required, right? People all together too often want to play one role. Um, I used to have a, a friend who, um, anytime we were doing something social, he always wanted to be the straight man. So I had to play the fool. And this was the, this was the dynamic that he right. preferred, right? And it was, a, it was a thing. We were business partners. And so it was this thing that we did. Um, and, it, and it was fine. I, I enjoy playing the fool sometimes. And um, he liked looking like that uh, grumpy eagle from the Muppets. And like that, it was a social thing that we did, right? But it did sometimes strike me at the time. And it's like, oh, my God, can we change this up? Just like once or twice, <laughs> you know, can we? And, and I, I sometimes felt that lack of flexibility. Likewise, many years ago, uh, a, a girlfriend of mine who was exceptionally clever about this sort of thing um, had pointed out to me that I very often would launch into uh, arguments. And she's like, and I don't even think you believe what you are saying. You just say a contrary <laughs> thing. And I uh, was like, I certainly don't. Um, and uh, anyway, so what she did, she was smart. She led me into this trap. Basically, she started arguing a point. It must have been pre-planned, but she started arguing this point, And I, of course, took up the counterpoint. And then move by move, she gradually shifted the nature of her argument to her position until she was arguing the opposite, right? At which point I, in perfect lockstep, had switched to arguing her original point. And then she was like, see, this, this is what I'm talking about. And, and I suddenly was like, oh, I am. And like, why am I doing that? And right. I, I had a real deep moment of access. And I was like, why am I doing that? I'm doing it because it's counterpoint. I'm doing it to play the devil's advocate because my sense is that that's how one fills out, right? Not necessarily. But it was really, it was a revelation for me at the time at 16 or something. Because it was like, right, a, a dance is not just you know, taking up the opposite position with somebody and then following them move for move. There's something that is more improvisational and there's something that requires a kind of a fluidity, um, a shift so that you can first do one thing and then do another. Um, and, and I think the same goes with this kind of like the contact with the fabric, right? Sometimes things have to shift around, right? Um, a little bit just to, to kind of I don't know, catalyze the, the effect of something. Um, I love that point. And the thing that comes up in me, and this is something that I constantly say to my friends who I can feel, um, this is something that I constantly say to my friends who whatever is being proposed by the mainstream, they <laughs> must believe the opposite. And it's that <laughs> the rebel is enslaved in the same way that the slave is because the rebel doesn't know their true point. The rebel has to be the opposite of whatever the thing is that's being offered. And that, that seems like a transitionary stage to your authentic self. But, if, mm -hmm. but a, a lot of people, especially people who are very low in agreeableness, they just stay there. And um, I find that uh, whenever I'm talking to someone who is like that, uh, I find myself becoming the advocate trying to steal man shit that I don't believe, you know, that's coming through the mainstream just to give them the sense of like, do you see how you are not free? Because no matter what is presented, you have to not believe it. 
and you think that that's you being the divine arbiter, you know, like the revolutionary, like the difference between the rebel and the revolutionary is that the mm -hmm. rebel is enslaved to be the opposite of whatever tradition is. But the revolutionary on some sense, I think in its highest aspect is like a prophet that it mm -hmm. has something genuine and unique coming through it, that it's the advocate for. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the prophet doesn't just, you know, obviously there's like a tradition, a prophetic tradition that has the, the wild man wander out of the desert, you know, with long beard and a mouthful of bees and honey, um, you know, and, and say like, this is all screwed up and we should stop it. Right. Um, but usually that, that comes with some kind of like actually proactive, you know, prescriptive vision of what, what needs to happen. Um, and I think, yeah, altogether too often people, um, especially because it's been so valorized in the West, right? The idea of rebel consciousness is so um, right. valorized. And, uh, and, you know, and I think that there's something to it, right? That there was never a change of any kind that wasn't first an unpopular rebellious position. Right. And I think I probably said for 25 years, uh, the minority isn't always right, but the majority is always wrong. Love it. I don't, I'm not so sure it's true in quite the same way. I mean, that, that kept me from doing things like um, I didn't wear shoes for years. <laughs> and, and, you know, I had other things, combat boots and stuff, but, like, I didn't wear shoes. I didn't wear um, shorts. Shorts were, like, the shockingly late, like, I wore them as a child. And then as soon as I was able to make my own determinations, I didn't wear shorts. And I look back on that period, and I'm like, why did I have that strange position? You know what are great? Shorts. <laughs> um, and the, it's a majority position like there was really a common wisdom about keeping your legs reasonably cool in the summer so you know I, I don't hold it quite as strongly but by the same token you know that that idea that the minority isn't always right but the majority is always wrong does carry in a certain sense because you know as I sometimes say to my clients it's like well it's not that way because if it was if the majority was right, then the world would be a very different place, wouldn't it? Right. <laughs> like, and the proof of the pudding is in the eating, you know, like this is, <laughs> this is what we got. And this is what we got from what most people believe. So should we continue to believe that? <laughs> Maybe not. Mm. Yeah. I think what I, I think part of what I heard there was, um, this relationship between the wisdom of crowds and also the madness of crowds. And mm. I think what's most important is the capacity to discern in whatever the case is in fact the wisdom. Um, and th there's something else that's really coming, coming through to me here when we speak about vision and fabric and it's the notion of religion. It's the notion of something we can all gather around in some sense, even if we want to understand that center as a wandering center, as a moving center to continually be re-realized and rewoven. Still some inner orientation towards something that together we can share in and that there's a bi-directionality to that. There's both uh, the classic uh, conservatism and progressive thing to put it in sort of more topical language, but a deep care for the lineage and the vitality of where one's been, where we've been together. Um, and what we're caring about now, and then also what it is we have to adapt to and the sort of the the valley to cross and the land beyond. So how do we reorient such a broad thing in this time? I just wonder, 
you know, I have a lot to say about this, but I'm wondering where the notion of religion and um, plays into this, this feeling, um, this sense of this. So, so, so Eric, you know, when you're mentioning how, you know, the, that the rebel is just as trapped, it's like, there's a sense in which someone who's just taking the contrary position isn't yet able to really participate in the generative thing together. There's still a kind of lock there, right? They, they might not have a belief maybe that it is actually possible to, to really step into a deep not knowingness, but actually somehow be caught in a kind of process to be held in a kind of process or at least go there together. I, I, you know, I'm not saying it always has to be like a nice, soft, holdy, pleasurable thing at all, but that we can actually go, hang on a second, like step the fuck back. Shit is fucked. Hey, shit is fucked. Like when, when that point comes when it's like, no, actually we've forgotten some extremely important things. You begin to put the, put the like step forward a little bit to confront, Hey, and go, have we really, so have we really forgotten something? Can we, can we go somewhere together? all these kind of these energies that I've just kind of that I've infused in this little dynamic here. I'm interested in what religion is like, how you hold the concept of religion and it's important in this time. Yeah. So, okay. Um, what comes up for me when I hear the word religion is that at least how it functions in my mind and how I see it function in most people's mind is that, and Jung has a great quote that I don't remember exactly, but religion is the barrier that keeps people from experiencing God. And the way that I understand that is religion as it's used is a set of principles or behaviors that you ought to do to be a part or to connect to whatever this version of divinity is that's been taught to you. Um, something about the death of God as pronounced by Nietzsche ushered in this incredible and probably terrible responsibility that it feels like, and this is what my life has felt like, and I'm sure it's going to resonate for both of you is that we now live in a time where we have to create our own religion, like personal religion within each of us. And really on some level, I think that that's your personal philosophy and that the only way to create your religion is you have to learn how to be quote unquote spiritual. But what I feel that means is, can you learn how to feel into what is trying to come out of you? And then you enact it in the world as an experiment. And then anything that improves the world around you, hold that as a principle for the time being, and then continue to act out the principles that arise through you. Be humble enough to put down the ones that don't improve your life in the way that you feel called to improve it. And then you slowly start to build up a set of, you know, hypotheses for how to be as a being in the world to make it a better place. And then your being becomes the testament of whatever your personal religion is. And then the way admiration function in people is that it's not a conscious choice. You don't get to choose who you admire. It's something that comes through you. And so then if people start to admire the principles that you're enacting in the world, you can use that as more feedback and that it feels like religion is the stultified version of spirituality and that we live in a time where no cement structure is going to be the thing that gets us to tomorrow and that people have to learn how to bring forward their personal spirituality and then we have to fucking communicate 
We have to share what we believe these ideas are. We have to be willing to be seen. We have to be willing to be critiqued. We have to be willing to transform. And my intuition is that there's a collectiveness that's happening through the um, rise in connective technology where there is an unnamed yet religion arising that will never be called a religion because the moment you call it a religion, you put you try to put a box around God, but it feels like there's a, a new spirituality that's arising that I hope continues to argue with each other in a way where it continues to adapt and evolve. And that I think that uh, religion in some sense is dead forever. It, through that interpretation of religion. Mm -hmm. I think religion still got some juice in it yet, but I also think that when we talk about religion, I mean, we're, we're falling into a certain kind of um, particularly very Western language game. Yeah. And, you know, religion, the, the concept of religion as like a Dewey decimal category um, of things in the world is, I think, very tied up with um, the concept of church orthodoxy mm. in this very specific way, right? And, you know, church orthodoxy obviously didn't stop Gnostics and Cathars and <laughs> Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and, right. Right, and any number of other split-off groups, um, and then eventually Protestantism, which really blew the cap off. But, but the idea of, of, a, of a sort of like a large centralized authority on doctrine is of, in some sense very Western, right? When, you know, uh, religious studies scholars and anthropologists, you know, went into other cultures, you know, we went in to India and we said, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism. But what we were really describing was like a huge variety of local practices and local deities. And it was diverse, as diverse in a sense as, you know, languages, right? Language diversity in an, in an area. And so you get these expressions, which obviously share a certain amount of underlying, you know, sh shared material because the humans are in proximity. But the idea of trying to be like Hinduism, it's not, it's just, it's not a thing in the same right. way, right? It's, there's a diversity of expression in the diversity. Um, and I think that in the same way as Latin, right, bound the West and the church mm -hmm. bound the West, Religion is similarly, it's a kind of yoking, right? It, it, where right. it binds the cultural consciousness in a certain way. Now, on one hand, yeah, I think that that has probably had, at least in its current formulation, sort of it, its heyday. Um, as this goes forward, people are going to be playing a much more syncretic and a much more a little of this and a little of that, like, you know, going to a nice market kind of approach. But, um, I guess I think about it in, in two ways. One, those old rituals, you know, the old rituals, the old liturgies, the old formulations of myth uh, often have a surprising amount of power left in them. Right. Um, provided you can connect. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like when you're talking in magical terms, you know, in the, in the 70s, there was a big rise in chaos magic. Mm -hmm. And chaos magic had this very, like, idiosyncratic do-it-yourself, individualize your myth kind of thing hit in the 70s, maybe peaked in the 90s, somewhat declined, right? right? And it's a cool idea that you can, you know, do a magical ritual and summon, you know, James Bond for mm -hmm. confidence and that fundamentally right. 
what you're dealing with in any event is sort of a narrative entity, right? Mm -hmm. um, however you want to put the metaphysics on there. Right. Um, but there is something to be said for the old, the old stuff. Like yeah. it's the, the blood runs deep. You have to really drill in a sense. You have to like concentrate to get in. But when you connect, you're connecting with something that has the rhythm and the routine of generations and generations of humans and has influenced the culture code in all of these ways, right? Which is why as much as people talk about it, I just don't think Christianity, for instance, is down for the count. Right. I think it's due for a massive transformation that's probably yes. 1,500 years overdue or so. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but like the, the, the fundamentals there and some of the fundamental, I mean, you know, I was raised like half Catholic. Uh, so my mom's Catholic, <laughs> Catholic heretic. And my right. dad is nominally Anglican, but he's actually just a, he's a kind of a, a pot, pothead science fiction fan. So, yeah. And those two streams, you know, come together. And so, you know, I was the questioning skeptical kid in my grade school. Um, like I got tossed out of religion class on the regular. Yep. Um, but when I reconnected to that stuff at about 20 and, you know, through, I, I wrote a novel about Christ. I started reading the gospels in as close to the original formulations as possible. Um, I did a lot of, you know, general scholarship about Jesus and I listened to Jesus Christ Superstar the, uh, the film version soundtrack nonstop for like, I don't know, months. Wow. Um, and the effect that that had, right, really just like soaked in, like I got this, this tremendous respect for um, some of those myths and things that I had taken for granted as being just like down for the count, right? I was like, no, it's not. Like there's, there is a vital current here, um, but it needs something. And I guess the way that I think about it is that, you know, when we talk about sort of spirituality or religion, when we talk about that binding function of religion, what we're talking about is authority, right? right? It's, it's authority and both like in the sense of like, you know, epistemological authority, but also political authority and right authority. And I think that the way forward, and obviously this ties into my own work, is that we need to invest that sense of authority um, and, and thus the kind of the unity that can bind together our experiences um, in something else. And I mean, my pitch is obviously science, that science needs to be playing an integral role in this. And that to the extent that science stops ignoring this shit, and it finally is to be fair. And right. honestly, you can go back pretty far, right? Scientists in previous uh, centuries had no problems thinking about this stuff. And, you know, uh, William James, right, is a huge pioneer of religious studies, but also of psychology, you know, at large. And I think returning to that Jamesian mold, not necessarily a perennialism of trying to like just everything boils down into the same thing, but instead looking at this stuff scientifically and realizing that our um, shared inheritance um, as human beings massively outweighs the differences, which doesn't invalidate the differences, they're important, but it gives us a framework. Um, and to the extent that we study it, we can understand like, what is it that matters to us in religion? Well, what matters is awe and the sense of the sacred, yep. the sense of transcendence yep. and the production of meaning and the ability of stories to, to reflect back and enrich and inform and, right? Yep. These are things that we can look at out of any specific religious context and thus enable that kind of thing where we can be doing personal exploration, but there's something that we can 
we can refer back to this some you know Polestar to guide by. It's the second time the Polestar came up. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't know what that means. I completely yeah. agree. And the thing that resonates yeah. the most with me is that it really feels like the call of this time is to help science learn how to bridge to the meaning and the value truths inside of religion. <clears throat> and instead of seeking to destroy religion, <laughs> seeking to integrate religion without the orthodoxy, without the political authority and like you know because the most the, the most convincing language of modern people now is science or what people think is science and there's all sorts of ways that it can be manipulated and such or at least to the <laughs> conscious mind and that if science can find a bridge to religion and to excavate the gold and the living essence that's still there i, f I feel is one of the most important tasks mm. hmm. yeah Science, I think, done right, and science is often done poorly. Yes. But, of course, science done right, you know, anytime people get bent out of shape, it's like, but they just found a new thing that contradicted the old thing. It's like, <laughs> good, then they're doing their job. Exactly. You know, that's, what the, that's what they're supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be churning, folks, because, you know, the whole point is that it's a constant unfolding. It's a constant, we're not going to get to the end. No. Science, contra what some people think, doesn't have a terminus. It's not... I don't think anyway. I mean, I could be wrong, I suppose. But I think it's just like, we're just going to continue to move into the twilight horizon. And yeah, like the intuition is that whatever this thing is, is infinite. Like yeah. whatever you want to call it is it's infinite. And so of course there is no end point in the understanding of infinity. Right. And it's just going to, it's going to revolutionize as it goes, right. As right. our sense of scale and our sense of whatever, and at the depth of our dynamics and, is going to just keep turning over. And one thing to bring us back around, you know, science, science in a sense often runs opposite conventional dogmatic narrative because it does two things. It, it has built into it this process of self-revolution, right? right. Very, very much so in a way that, you know, theology or something might, might resist fairly mm -hmm. strenuously. Um, but the other, of course, is that it deeply weirds things. So people often talk about science disenchanting the world. And I, I just think that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, common sense takes the, um, takes the um, sort of unfamiliar and explains it in terms of the familiar. But science takes the familiar and then explains it in terms of the unfamiliar. Yeah. It makes everything much weirder, much yeah. weirder. Um, and so that, right, um, now whether or not culture at large can handle that, as a central ethos is, is not clear, right? Because that's in some ways a minority position that's hard for people to come to. Um, it, it, it challenges their sense of stability and, and all kinds of stuff and it, it pisses them off. Um, but I think if we could get that going and then maybe connect it up, I think with something else you said, which is the, the, the in some sense, the, the democratization or at the very least the egalitarian distribution of inactive myth-making. Right. right. So that we're not being given myths in the same way, but we're producing them. Right. And that's, of course, one of the reasons I'm so big on, on role-playing a game is I sometimes see it as this kind of historical emergence. There was really nothing like it 60 years ago. And mm -hmm. 50 years ago, it comes on the scene and it sort of emerges from wargaming in, innocuously. But then since then, the basic concepts and stuff 
have been making these steady secret invasion kind of inroads into the culture that have massively altered the way that we think about games, the way that we think about stories, right? Mass media, you know, I don't think you could have Game of Thrones in some sense without having that kind of gaming. And, you know, a direction people often go on it is they're like, well, what role-playing games do is, of course, they sort of, they prefigure virtual reality. But, and, and maybe they do. Uh, certainly the language is going to end up borrowed the same way as it was for, for video games, right? Uh, millions, billions of people play Pokemon and have no idea that levels and HP and all of that stuff, is, that's just D&D code. But, um, but I think even more interesting is like the way that, especially in the current explosion, what it does is it passes, it passes these tools for like small group, idiosyncratic myth-making yes. and value production and dramatic storytelling in, in what is in many ways the oldest art form, right? Verbal storytelling and a certain amount of animated pictures, right? It, it brings us back to the campfire with, mm. you know, some rules and some dice because we're grown up and we want to, you know, deflect arguments. I'm getting um, yeah. Right? But, but if we can sort of do that and link it up with psychotechnologies, right? If we can go into, you know, the, the shattered cathedrals, as it were, and, and take the stained glass windows out of them and bring them into the light and, and hook them up to something that's, that's, that's self-regenerating and, and, yes. and sort of weirding like science, that I think is the sort of engine that might actually get us through the, the narrow gate that faces us. And I'm an optimist too, to be fair. Uh, I'm just an optimist that sweats heavily every time I read the news. <laughs> I fucking love the idea and I got goosebumps when you articulated that there is something up there is something almost implicitly in in subversive about role playing in the sense that it allows people to learn how to generate their own myths and then to embody those own myths inside of a game and game is one of the oldest like structures that the conscious mind has created to help guide action. And Mm -hmm. I know for me personally, like I was raised on role-playing games, not television. You know, like I grew up in a family where everyone else was watching TV, but I was playing Final Fantasy for 50 or 100 hours. And I was learning about mythological uh, creatures. I was looking, I was learning about gods. I was learning about what it means to be heroic. And like Mm -hmm. my path compared to everyone that I grew up with is so fundamentally different. And it feels like a huge part of that is because I played role-playing games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is it's, and this sometimes surprises me when I consider, but uh, all that's in its infancy. Yeah. Like especially tabletop video games, of course, have inherited a lot of it and they've become massively more sophisticated. Um, But even tabletops only 50 years old, 50 years. There are a few things that are like, you know, um, go back a little further if you sort of dig around in the historical record, but like it's a more recent technology than radio. And so <laughs> like, you know, a significantly more recent technology, it's more recent than television. Yeah. And yet it's a kind of, it's a thing that it's almost shocking. It never existed. I mean, you could have had it in the Roman empire. They had all the bits. It's just that it didn't emerge. And I think, there's something that that I often speculate is there, which is that 
when you have a culturally unified ethos of storytelling, be it religion or general mythology and stuff, there's already that structure. And like right. it's, it's Interesting. mostly, not that it was never used as propaganda, it was, but that, that being within that structure sort of met those needs. And pe so people, if you were a bard or something, maybe you, you would ad lib right. and write and, and embellish and tell stories and add stuff. And in the oral traditions, that's often the case. But for everybody else, they were just on the receiving end. And I think what we're really starting to see is that that participatory aspect, which takes us back into ritual. Participatory drama is ritual. It's putting on a role. It's draping yourself in the, you know, the, the animal skin hood yes. and then taking on the form of the animal. And, you know, as somebody who wow. runs games, right? As somebody who runs games, one of the things that I like to point out to people is I play all the bad guys. This is a shadow workout. Like you wow. can't get in therapy, man, because, <laughs> because I can just be an absolute bastard. And that's what they want. That's what everybody wants. You want a good antagonist, no good right. villain, no good story in a basic story. And so yeah. I get to be absolutely like, like a grind. And yet I can put it into the space where everybody gets a cathartic payoff where I don't have to take my monstrousness uh, and excessively embody it in the world. Um, right. But instead I get to like move into these spaces that might otherwise be quite frankly, kind of terrifying to, to yeah. inhabit in other contexts. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. I, sorry, I could go on about no, this stuff all day, but. So um, the thing that, that really um, resonated with me is that it's so again, it's this idea that like, if psyche is like the ocean, you cannot concretize over it. It will always mm. birth through. And that mm. when organized religion really lost the, uh, function that it serves in the psyche when it, you know, kind of disintegrated in the last 100 years, it had to come out through some other way. And one of the ways that it's erupted back through is through role playing. I recently read a book called we by Robert Johnson. Are you familiar with it? I am. Yeah. It's a whole okay. he, she, we, yes. there's like a, a sequence of them. Yeah. Right. And the idea of we is he articulated that one of the other places where the function that religion sought to meet erupted back through when the container was kind of destroyed is through romantic love. And that mm -hmm. it's the projection of the divine onto the partner that then allows you to work through, you know, all of the aspects that we sought to have met through religion. And so these feel like two prime examples in our lifetime where like Jung talked about, you can destroy the container, but the archetype will just go underground, you know, mm -hmm. and that these seem to be two of the big primary ways that um, whatever it is that the psyche seems to need in order for it to be healthy, it's finding new mm -hmm. containers. And two of them are the projection of the, you know, inner God onto the romantic partner. And then also, role-playing and the other thing that you shared is um the catharsis that can come through role-playing of working out your shadow it's exactly the same type of articulation that i hear from people that consciously explore bdsm like what right. i find right right which is structured into scenes and exactly. also has dungeon masters exactly right. yes and that um what i find is people who have complex ptsd they actually seem to be the ones who gravitate towards BDSM 
when it's done consciously and intentionally, it actually allows them to like almost replay the scenes that their inner child would had to have played out in order to, you know, Mm. not be traumatized. And it feels like, uh, I love that you just connected scenes and dungeon masters and it's the exact, like, to me, all of this is more evidence that the psyche is so powerful at seeking whatever it can find in its environment to heal and to grow Mm -hmm. in the same way that wherever you plant that motherfucking seed, it is going to use every possible resource in its environment to grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about working with the unconscious, I think that's, wonderful, but also sometimes frustrating, right? Is that it exceeds our conscious scope by such a a huge factor, right? That it's like when, you know, people really want a sense of finality, right? They want to be able to go through a process and finish it. It's like, no, you don't understand. Like you never, you're never done. You're never done because you can't be because it's impossible because it's so much bigger than you, right? And by the same token, um, I think, you know, the, the, you know, the fact is that it's, it's thus more adaptable than we are and more mercurial than we are. It can always find another way in. It's smarter than we are <laughs> in some sense, right? It doesn't matter which, what bullshit constructions we end up putting up, it can figure out a way around. And my experience with complexes, especially, I mean, even if they're kind of screwing with you, they're very clever about it, right? They can, they can do these really clever, you know, workarounds. Romantic love is an interesting one. I have to admit, that's actually something that, that worries me a bit when I consider it. Um, I remember Johnson's point in We, and I sometimes worry that, you know, after we sort of shoved God off the throne, that looking for a, a sort of a pivot point for the universe, we, we enthroned romantic love, right? Right, and that's and not the right move. It's the problem with it is that it, trying to make another human being the pivot point of the universe is unfair to them and yes. unfair to yourself. Yep. And like you see it with projections all the time, right? 100%. Where, you know, one member of the couple is like, Oh my God, they're perfect. They're perfect in every way. And the other member of the couple is probably saying something more like they're not perfect, but I'll change those things. Uh, and both of them are disappointed. One wears through the illusion and it's like, what you're a human this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for a divine being. Uh, and the other one is like, I have failed to transform you into my particular divine being that I had in mind. Yes. And everybody walks away pissed off that they yeah. didn't end up with a, a perfect lover of limitless erotic capacity, an absolute best friend, a you know, business partner, a, like, a replacement for you know, the all meaning. Um, wow. So I worry about that sometimes. And, and a lot of that is about the erosion of friendship. Um, you know, people localize themselves in one relationship because families are more atomized. Friendship is not, you know, like I was remarking to my, my partner actually the other day, I was like, there are couples therapists. Why are there no friends therapists? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Is the answer you just said rocks me because I find that my one of my complexes is I try to make my romantic partner also my best friend and that Mm. that puts too much pressure on them and that feels like that's something that like we've evolved to be in a tribe you know and to Mm -hmm. disperse that weight amongst many 
yeah this yeah. is this has been a really beautiful train progression dialogue here that i've really enjoyed witnessing I, an image did come to me though i feel like i'm watching a beautiful ship and i just took a jump in the ocean and i'm trying to catch up back with the ship now um and i've got like hey guys i've got like a couple planks here you know i, I feel like i want to i want to add them onto the ship so there's, there's a couple interesting themes coming through so you've mentioned the importance of science the importance of participatory myth-making, put that into a slightly different category, like the playing it out in a way that is evocative or um, enabling of growth together. And we've also spoken about the importance, um, or we, we, we've sort of spoken about the, the, the fragmentation and the breakdown of religious structures where previously there had been a congregation. Um, and before then, we've got these notions of tribe and we've just moved on to speaking about how it's uh, sort of inappropriate to sort of conduit what was this um, multi-nodal network that one was a part of through like one specific point, like one specific person, too much of a pivot. And I'm feeling like, I'm feeling like there's actually a lot, obviously, to save here in religion. And I can appreciate the point about words becoming unworkable in some important sense. And uh, something that was coming to me, I think that might thematically bring a lot of this together is the idea that's spoken about quite a bit, which is, which is that, you know, the church is not the building. It's the people who have the capacity to build churches and concrete, you know, concrete churches is actually really helpful to get through the night to get to the next day. It's just that we want to, not mistake the church for the actual thing. It's our capacity to religion as reconnect together to, in an ongoing sense, realize what <laughs> the kind of um, wandering structure enabling of our ongoing adaptivity and um, protection from that which would sort of pull us apart or, or too much entropy um, or what have you, so that we can go out and face another day, that we can rejuvenate, you know, this idea of a kind of a integration as metabolizing in good company was something that came to me the other day that I quite liked and was something I so realized I, I was seeking after some particular sort of energetic expenditure just to hang out with friends and eat some food, which is something difficult for me at the moment because we're under curfew here. Or in fact, we're not now as of a couple of days ago but we were for like 10 weeks or so in Melbourne, which has been quite a trip. Something else was this, um, this frustration with religion as too much of a concrete authority, but that if we can shift this to some sort of more flexible religion as ennobling and enabling of our authorship over our connectedness together on an ongoing basis, that this is kind of helpful. But I, I, I wonder about, you know, as, as part of me that wants to actually um, dig in a little bit to what we mean by science, because I'm seeing science here as, in fact, not the container within which everything else is sitting. And in fact, that, that the curious spirit of the scientific approach to the world to continually sort of disconfirm what one previously thought to be the case and continue to move towards some sort of um, more real pattern in that sense is itself the will for that we can just as well say is more lit by something you know inflamed by something that we can refer to in a more metaphysical sense which is something that at least in my sort of coherence making of my own process is something that plays a very sort of um 
important role there. And it, it kind of partly comes up in this notion of psyche that we've presenced just towards the end here is that it will find a way, you know, it will find a way in whatever the context is to make itself, um, to, to realize itself. And so what I'm hearing, and please like, maybe this is not so, I'm hoping this kind of synthesizes in a helpful way. What I'm hearing is that something of what we mean by science, the, the methodology of observation and, um, you know, better epistemics in that kind of um, sense can help us understand what are the most effective ways of creating game-like structures, enabling of participating in the emerging context of our time so that we can, in fact, let what in us is sort of transcendentally available to reconnect with each other in this way of friendship, fellowship, and in some sense, our sort of this capacity we have to extend the hand with each other. And in the face of finitude and the looming void, we can be together and transcend it and accept it and enjoy ourselves along the way. I'm finding science rather than being the fundamental thing within that can situate all of this is in fact, like in some sense, it's like of the essence of tool of the essence mm. of technology that we must wield appropriately, but that cannot in some sense, we should not see it as something that can explain our nature, which is why mm. I think this Jungian type approach just from this angle and a metaphysical one as well can help, I think, provide a more rounded integrous notion of what it is to be fundamentally and as as we're here how is this as a sort of framing mm -hmm. yeah um i mean science at the end of the day the experimental method and whatever it's it's one more psychotechnology right it's one more tool in the kit um it's a tool that does certain particularly good things as good at generating sort of certain kinds of communal questions it's very good at taking small things and refining them to the point of being able to get a particular kind of effect reliably, right? And I think that that general thing, I mean, you think about, you know, we're having this call right now. Um, I think we're in three different countries, aren't we? I didn't ask. Where, Eric, where are you? Uh, Texas. Texas. So definitely, we're in three different countries. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So we're in three different countries, right? It's spanning across various points in the globe. We're bouncing the shit off satellites. It's going through fiber optic cables, right? All of this comes out of a technological innovation, which was, you know, a little over a hundred years ago, Alexander Graham Bell speaks into a piece of, you know, compressive carbon and like three meters away in another room, his butler or whatever picks up the line and he hears ah, Watson come here. That was only a hundred years ago. Our ability to technically refine things once we poke a hole, right, right. with science is astounding. We're very good at mm -hmm. that. And so, you know, there are certain kinds of questions that I think science can't really get at. I mean, this is Jung's point, essentially speaking, about, um, I, about sort of um, the relationship between the self and God and, and how that fits together with uh, um, agnosticism right? Which is, you know, at some level, it's just epistemologically impossible to get confirmation or disconfirmation of the existence of God. What experience or evidence could you receive that would actually definitively, you might become quite, you might develop conviction, 
but like in a philosophical epistemological sense there's no way to prove or disprove the existence of god it doesn't matter what happens the sky could crack open and beard man could lean out and say i'm god and the next day we'd all be arguing about what happened right, right? <laughs> even if we agreed on what we saw we would be disagreeing on the interpretation and people would be like ah, it's probably some kind of seismic effect of jittering your temporal lobes, or that could have been a nearby alien, or who the hell knows, right? But Jung's point is a good one, which is, however, it's sort of indisputable when you look in the data that people have encounters with something deep within their own psyche, which, by its nature, appears using the kind of forms and language, right? The, the divine grammar that when we have these encounters with the self like what smashes in speaks in metaphor riddle and and strange melded opposites and paradox and that's how it hits us is that ultimately an experience of god impossible to tell but the point is that if you don't have a relationship with that thing with that aspect in your personality you're missing out on a profound dimension of human experience yeah. it's part of our shared inheritance and um, and, you know, moreover, if, if you want to have a relationship with it, you are in some ways backed into speaking the language it chooses to speak, which, shocker, <laughs> is symbols and rituals and, yeah. right? Like, that's yeah. how it speaks. And that's how yeah. it, it's how you can interface, right? In the way that poetry cuts more than prose, if mm. you know what I mean, like a poem yeah. has a, like a concentrated charge to it. And, you know, there's using religious language and symbolism that way has that kind of concentrated charge. So you end up doing the same thing, whether you're addressing just some like, you know, genetic predisposition that you have to have a little twist in your brain that does such and such and such, or whether you are in some sense dealing with, you know, the, the, uh, the, the boiling heart of creation, uh, mm. doesn't matter. You got to deal with it kind of in the same way. So, Science, I think, can't answer questions like that. Like, there are mysteries that, in my opinion, science cannot get at. I sometimes wonder if consciousness is one of those. I mean, I do right. work in that area, so I have high hopes that, <laughs> that we're making actual progress. But if I'm honest, like, the hard problem is a hard problem. Yeah. And the problems of consciousness are hard, and there are lots of these things, you know, that science ultimately can't get at. There's a, there's a horizon of mystery, you know. Um, but what it's super good at, is these like concentrated hole poking exercises, which then open a possibility. And that's what science does. And once it's, right, you can't disprove things, right? But you can, you can make the possibility of something real. Like, so you only need whatever, one black swan to prove the existence of black swans, right? right. You need one jab, one credible jab with science, and then we can elaborate the hell out of it. And if that jab is, is, is something that lets us poke through, I think these like, you know, these concrete barriers, these filmy things that we have between us and some kind of more authentic relationship with each other, with nature, with being, right? Then if science can just get the hole in there based on studying what religion has already been doing, then everybody else in science can just go at it and, and, pull that thing open. And in a hundred years, we've got whatever the transition is to where we are now technologically with telecommunications equivalent is, you know, um, that's, that's where I place my hope in science that it's fantastically good at doing that particular thing. And I think some people are scared. Sometimes I'm scared about 
you know, some the instrumental the instrumentalization, I guess, of the sacred, you know. Mm. Um, and I used to work in that field. That's a whole other story. Um, but um, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of promise. There was something that jumped out about what you had just said, Tim, and how it bounced off what Eric said. And uh, what I thought was, it's interesting. You guys have talked about this, like, the, the issues that people have. And I realized it's like, oh, it's the conflation of abstraction and concreteness in both directions. <laughs> when you're talking about the concrete boxes, right? And every time you say it, I find the song Little Boxes running through my head. You know that song? Yeah. Yep. Little boxes made of ticky tacky. Yep. Oh, it's good. There's a Def Cab for Cutie version that I quite like. I recommend. <laughs> so, uh, you know, little boxes, right? And, and these like nested boxes. And what is that? That's us. You know, what are the boxes? The boxes are abstractions, but they're abstractions that we take to be concrete. Right. Right. And then, Tim, what you were mentioning is, is sort of the opposite, right? It's this conflation where we take things that are concrete and we treat them abstractly. <laughs> we treat them highly abstractly. And so we seem to get jammed in both directions, right? Um, and I don't remember where that thought was pointing, but it did occur to me. Yeah, and the thing that arises in me is that actually touches beautifully on um, what I see as like the marriage that can happen between science and the sacred is mm -hmm. discerning what can be, what can be concretized and what is actually made more sacred through concretizing it, which I think is the realm of science. And then mm. what needs to not be concretized, that needs to stay abstractions, that needs to stay symbolic, and that that's actually how you get the most, you know, like the reason we concretize is to attempt to get more functionality or usefulness out of it. And that by mm. not concretizing the sacred, you actually get the function that you seek from concretizing it. Like one of the things as a coach that comes up more like, especially for people who are just beginning to use plants to like alter consciousness is mm -hmm. do not concretize the symbols and people right. want to concretize the symbols that make them feel huge and godlike and grand. Yes. And then anything that comes that is scary, I'll leave that in abstraction and it comes up mm -hmm. in dream interpretation all the time. And sure. that feels like, like if we can discern between the usefulness of what needs to be concretized and what needs to be left symbolic, I think that that's how we can get the most out of what feels like these two dominant spheres, which is like the essence of science and the essence of the sacred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, it's interesting it, for sure with dream interpretation, right? Um, there's always that, and, and even I had this in, in analysis. There's always this tendency to hit the like, the facile interpretation, yep. right? The yep. simplest thing, you know, you dream about your aunt and it's like, oh, it's about my aunt. It's like, no, right. it isn't. No. It's about you. <laughs> you know, or it's, it's not, it's transjective, right? right? So it points both ways. And, but that's right. even harder to right. really wrap your head around the idea that it's like, yes, it points into the world but also it's pointing in yourself and the genius of the dream maker is that it manages to perfectly clothe one to the other. It's, yeah. it's the, the bone mo mm. right effect where, you know, a really good word in a poem is not yeah. accidental and it's just so right. And dreams are just so 
in that Jungian way. It's like, that's a big difference in some ways, right? Between the Jungian and the Freudian. It's like 100%. just a pen and a knife aren't just penises. I mean, maybe they are a bit, but you know, if there's a knife in your dream, it's because it's a knife. It's a knife and yeah. not something else. And so what's a knife? Why right. that? It's not right. accidental. Why a right. knife? And so, you know, that, but getting that down, that like fine tuning the level of abstraction <laughs> and getting it pointing in both directions, it's hard. 100%. Um, it's so, hard. so hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Um, that can help us with this. And is there a myth that can help sort of um, <laughs> place this relationship between the abstraction and the concrete as we've come to use them in this conversation? Because I don't, I have them. In some ways, I have them locked, but in, in another sense, I find myself looking for more clarity. Or the one Eric was talking about, which is this, like, as people are doing this work, they often want to concretize the symbols that inflate them, right? right? They, they want to turn things into godlike talismans they can clutch onto so they can smash through the rest of their life. Yeah. Uh, Icarus, it's the myth of Icarus. That's the classic inflation myth. You know, so you, you're trapped in the labyrinth, right? Um, because your father is the labyrinth maker because some king's wife slept with a sacred bull. They always go way back, right? They always chain into each other. But the point is you're stuck in a labyrinth. And your father, of course, is brilliant uh, and, and a godlike kind of creator. And so he fashions wings. But he warns you, don't fly too high, don't fly too low. It's Goldilocks. Don't fly too high, don't fly too low. We always remember the too high. We never remember the too low. Right. We never we always remember because that's what he did. Right. He flies up towards the sun and in so doing eats up too much and he's in the drink. But he equally could have if he had flown too low. Right. He would have picked up too much moisture on the wings. Yeah. And so this this middle path. Right. And somehow being able to transition those is sort of central in some way to Icarus. I mean, think about what to fly as a bird. You've got muscular action, but you're also like riding up drafts and there's a dynamic quality to it to going yeah. through the middle and yeah for sure with with uh, plant teachers with mystical experiences generally um certainly with meditative experiences the the drive towards inflation is so yeah. powerful and it's so tricky um it wants to convince you that you are you know that you um, are the archetype yeah that you're the right you're the new messiah congrats right, right? Yeah. and it can be very convincing the thing I always tell my students is, um, if you think you've reached enlightenment, spend the weekend with your family. Yep. Ram Dass. Yep. <laughs> right. Yes, Ram Dass. That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, because like <laughs> nothing lances that <laughs> faster than having yep. your old horseshit adolescent complexes rage all over the place. <laughs> Amen. Um, and I think the beautiful put, thing put about do. the myth of Icarus is that the other, like where people default so it feels like when the psyche hits an obstacle in life, if it doesn't want to actually contend with being transformed by the obstacle, the two things it will tend to do is either inflate or try to depress below it. And Icarus feels like the perfect example. Like a lot of people will destroy themselves through false stories. So they don't even be begin to contend with transformation. And then other That's people right. will try to inflate above it. So they again, do not have to contend with transformation. And, you know, that brings us full circle. I think that that's actually why the hero's journey, when looked at as an archetypical map to guide you to transforming mm -hmm. the ego in the presence of what the self calls you to face, seems to be the most useful 
guide map as, you know, a quote unquote coach that I have found so far in my life. Hmm. Yeah. I think, I think you've really got something there. Like, mm, you know, the, the idea is you're trying to fly this middle ground and it's like, there are rules to some extent. I, you know, there aren't really, but there <laughs> sort of are. Right. And right. And that in and of itself is confusing as hell. And so people's responses are they dive too low. And then they say, there are rules and these are the rules and I know the rules, right? And they do not flex. And I'd rather be certain and wrong <laughs> than, <laughs> than, than to bother to shake that off. And, yeah. you know, that way lies all kinds of things, right? I think in some ways, like, you know, dogmatic Dawkins style new atheism is not much different than fundamentalism Amen. in that sense, right? Uh, it's just like, it's like, no, no, right. no, no. And I know. And that is its own form of hubris. Um, And just like, you know, whatever, (laughs) general absurdity. Uh, So, you know, that's to go low. And if you want to go high, what do you do? You puff yourself up real far and say, well, luckily rules don't apply to me. (laughs) I transcend the rules through my very being. And the thing is, they're both, they've got something to them. Right. But divorced from each other, you know, it's a nightmare. Um, you know, it's a, it's a nightmare. So, and then you end up in the drink, no matter what you do. It's not so bad to go in the drink, to be fair. That's, that's the whole bottom half of the hero's journey. Get in the drink. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hearing a lot of the, um, the ongoing need to learn how to make, uh, boats we can sail in, in this time, you know, Mm. Now, maybe boats aren't getting off the air there, so it needs to be some sort of hovercraft just to like stick with the Icarus thing. Oh, boats are going to come back. Yeah, 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 well. Um, Sailboats are awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems... Um, yeah, something I'm increasingly fascinated by is the kind of, as I mentioned earlier, the what you might call the sort of archetypes of what enables optimal or at least good generativity in conversation Mm. we might just say like what makes for a good group of friends even what makes that's actually adapting to an environment you know able to build and essentially take care of what needs to be taken care of um, as they all become who they are you know this notion of the self that calls that you speak to eric um i often sense that the process of individuation in Jung and and I haven't read enough to be um to be sure of this but um some sort of concern that I've developed um particularly as well sort of um analyzing or observing the Jordan Peterson phenomenon and how he addresses just just that whole that whole journey on ongoing journey and what that ended up crystallizing in terms of a message and in terms of individual responsibility and um self authorship fundamentally which is the fourth stage in keegan's developmental model the fifth being um something beyond self authoring i forget the exact name he gives to it do you do you recall that it's it's it, at any rate it's it's like a it's like a trans paradigmatic thing it's like an inter it's like an interdependency the recognition of interdependency so beyond self authorship how can we become together 
um, what we need to be so that there's this concept of the lookout that I really like that a guy called Tyson Yonker Porter speaks about in his book, Sand Talk. But basically it's an in indigenous concept. I used to, uh, something similar came to me after a DMT experience once to do with the importance of appreciating the beauty around me, but also to push just beyond it appropriately, like just to advance the station, my station, but only after I'd really come to appreciate exactly where I was in some sense. And so the lookout is something like, okay, so what of this domain of complexity, this domain that I'm custodian for, what is mine to be in this kind of caring reciprocal relationship with and what is someone else's and how are we all working together to together tend to the ecology, which is supporting us all and enabling us all to sort of individuate in some sense that the one thing is an interdependent processual cycle of becoming or a certain sort of transformation. And um, this notion of the self in the Jungian sense often I think I think when people relate to it certainly I did when I was first encountering the ideas I think I saw it as something perhaps a little bit too isolated interpreting it from the self-authorship point of view where it was though there was something for me to become in a way that maybe didn't necessarily take into account the the need for that to be part of let's say a tribe and to be part of a contributing element to that which was the eternal creation of the context, which actually has to be there in order for me to be who I need to be anyway. And so I'm wondering if, if, if it makes sense to extend the notion of the self or if Jung already incorporates this into a sort of understanding. Well, I'm, but how I relate to this kind of, um, how I relate to this sun in the solar system of the self as this thing which projects its light and sort of calls to me, it's both an ember and an echo in some sense that acorn-like nature, but also the, the echo back of its projection of what it can become is that it's a kind of, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a moving center like the fabric that in each of us, the ember is, it's a collective flame in that sense. And we each are responsible for our appropriate portions of the fabric and we switch sides and we have different roles and all the rest of it. But we take responsibility for the different sort of um, niches which together constitute this interdependent ecology and all of that in some sense itself from the sense of the from a sense of monism from a sense of we're all connected man this ongoing recreation and there's something inherently transjective about that i'm just wondering if if there can be a critique made of jung and i'm not the one to make it because i can't speak to what the man truly finally really said there's obviously lots of different interpretations but is there a critique to be made of Jung that in some sense the individual's relationship to the collective unconscious even was altogether perhaps a little bit too individual and not mm -hmm. enough of a truly involved participatory remaking of that very fabric of the collective unconscious if you can kind of see what I'm trying to gesture at mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so it's almost tricky, right? Because Jung is writing over half a century and his ideas are changing. And, you know, when you're sort of trying to teach this material, it's always tricky because people are like, well, he says this here, but he says this here. And it's like, yep, it's true. That's, those are two different things that he said 25 years apart. So you should get to work on reconciling those things. Um, you know, 
one of the yeah i mean no i think i think you're right in some ways right they, jung is speaking to some extent and it's an earlier version of it but out of the framework of like you know western individualism and that kind of like atomized vision of the individual i mean you know individuation even typically as a term more often than not triggers people's sense that they're going to become you know an individual right like a radical monad you know highly unified and you know it's only it's only when you kind of get into the concept that you're pointing out that it's like it's not that simple you, you're in fact you're becoming highly individual you are shedding yourself of your idea that you are unitive um and and then you are undergoing something that yes involves integration but not just integration it involves integration and dissociation repeatedly between different parts to form a far more complex and dynamic inner community, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I think Jung takes it for granted in some sense that there is an outer community because, you know, from 1910 through to 1960, those things were still, if not perfectly intact, more intact than they are now, right? There were still bowling leagues and church picnics and like, Right thing, the sorts of things that people used to, to have, community structures at large. Now, at the same time, you know, one of the things the self pretty notoriously calls people to do is separate themselves from the tribe, right? And to, yep. to, to walk into the desert, to go into the cave, to yep. put oneself into the monastery, like sometimes separating oneself out, but it's the same thing. It's integration, dissociation. And, right. you know, one of the most powerful experiences I, I had in my life, for sure, um, as an experience of the self was um, during my kind of uh, second and, and quite powerful uh, Iboga experience. And I had primed myself for the idea of, I was doing some, some Kabbalistic work, so I won't get too deep, but I was combining Iboga with Kabbalah and I was planning to ascend to Tiferet, the solar sphere, wow. okay? And the idea was I would encounter the resurrecting gods, right? These are your gods that come back to life. You'd think being raised Christian that the God I might encounter would be, you know, Jesus or mm -hmm. maybe a Mithra or something, you know? Uh, but when I actually sort of got to this space, this radiant golden space in the psyche, as it were, um, I encountered Superman. This surprised me tremendously. I love it. Um, I mean, it makes much more sense. That would have had far more basic impact on me and I could go on about that. But the point is I encountered Superman had this dialogue with Superman. And one of the things that came out of that as things that have come out with some of these other experiences that were in some cases based in altered states that were sort of exogenous in some right. way. And in some cases fully endogenous, right? Yeah. These, these things that broke through the bottom of the bucket um, was that very often what these things did when I connected with this was that, yes, sometimes it would sort of drive me into the wilderness, but a lot of the time, it would, and certainly with this one, with Superman and with some of those experiences, it was like, okay, now it's time to go back to civilization. Like it's yeah. time to rejoin the tribe. Yeah. So, and I think that's something that Iboga and ayahuasca both, and my experience yeah. with Iboga more so than ayahuasca, ayahuasca, when I asked it about my human relationships was like, no, that doesn't matter. Here are 19 neon jaguar gods. Um, that was my experience. But right. Boga was very concerned with ground level human ties, right? right? And to whatever extent, and I think, you know, it's reasonable to think of those things as legitimate um, sort of mystical experiences and connections. 
I think that they have this way of pulling people back to community when that's what's needed. And that it, in some sense, mirrors and reflects. And that's the union idea. Your inner community and your outer community. Right, exactly. It's it's all transjective, right? Um, That's why we project onto people. And so, you know. Um, So I'm going to have to go after this. But but the thing that comes up in response to your question is that, um, so my understanding is that one of Jung's favorite stories at the end of his life was the Rainmaker story. And I think the Rainmaker story perfectly answers this question. And so in brief, the story is uh, his friend is in China, is at a village, and the village is going through a drought. And the Westerner, you know, who sees the world through the Westerner lens is wondering, like, what the townspeople or what the village people are going to do about this drought. And the people tell them, don't worry, we're waiting on the Rainmaker. And this Westerner is like, you know, what the hell's a Rainmaker? And this old man eventually comes to the village and the town or the village people go to him and they take him to a hut at the edge of the village and they put him in the hut. And the Westerner watches that he stays in this hut for three days. And then at the end of the third day, it starts raining and the rainmaker emerges out of the hut and the Westerner goes up to him and he asks him, what did you do? How did you do this? And the rainmaker said, I come from a place where the land is in order. And because the land is in order, the land does what it must do. When I came to this place, the land was out of order and I got infected. So I had to go put myself in order. And once I put myself in order, the land came into order and the land did what it had to do. And my understanding of that this in this embodies what the individuation process is. And it's that you have to get away in order to come into order with yourself. And then the natural byproduct of being in order in yourself is you bring that order to the environment and it improves the environment and that it will always bring you back to the community. Perfect. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider sharing them or leaving a review, and perhaps also to consider supporting it on patreon.com voicecraft. Your support makes a life-changing difference and a life-affirming impact. It will help sustain the podcast, build the network, and make possible more community events and educational resources. Read about member benefits at patreon.com voicecraft. There are breadcrumbs to follow if you look.